0: Good morning and welcome to Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and my guest today is uh, Lori Leach, PhD. She has been a clinical trainer, researcher, and psychotherapist for over 25 years. She's the co founder and director of the Trauma Resource Institute, a nonprofit center which provides training in the trauma resiliency model. TRM, trauma resiliency model, is a biologically based trauma treatment appropriate for use with complex trauma and with adults and children suffering from long-term and acute trauma Dr. Leach has extensive experience providing clinical training and consultation in diverse and cross-cultural settings. Her experience with complex trauma includes providing treatment following 9-11, treatment and clinical training in southern Thailand after the tsunami, in Louisiana following hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and in China following last year's earthquake. Dr. Leach is also does research, in, which is, includes social programs and clinical evaluations for natural, national foundations, the federal government, and nonprofit organizations, as well as outcome studies, understanding um, the value and work of TRM um, throughout the world. Most recently, Dr. Leach provided training in the Trauma Resiliency Model to counselors working with genocide survivors in Rwanda, Africa, to counselors and female prisoners in internationally and internally displaced persons in Kenya, Africa. She's also a visiting faculty of the uh, Upaya Zen Center's Buddhist Chaplaincy Program. I want to welcome you, Dr. Leach, to uh, Healthy Options. Well, thank you,
1: Rhonda. I'm delighted to be a part of your program.
0: Thank you. So, I guess the first thing we need to talk about, and there is so much to uh, to talk about. This is such a, de- a a rich topic. Maybe you could give us a, a brief idea of what we're talking about when we say when we are talking about trauma, just uh, to kind of put it in a context.
1: Well, it's different for different people, of course. So, generally, we talk about trauma as simply as possible, so that it's understandable to lots of different types of people, and not just clinicians. So we talk about big T trauma, which are events that are kind of the obvious things we expect people to be distressed by, like um, war, terrorism, genocide, um, uh, let's see what else, well, rape, sexual assault, things like that, family violence. We also talk about little T trauma, which is things like medical, invasive medical procedures, surgeries, dental work, um, arguments with people who mean a lot. All kinds of things that, you know, some people wouldn't consider um, warrant the term trauma, but in many cases they destabilize the system so much that uh, we consider them that. And then cumulative trauma, which is at the sort of societal level, can be things like racism, homophobia, poverty, um, colonialism. We're working a lot in Africa, as you mentioned, and um the effect of colonialism is quite pervasive in the countries in Africa that we've been working in
0: so when you're talking about physical something that shows up in the body what were you what were you referring to
1: well it's interesting you know we call this a biologically based model and it is a, in qu- quite stark contrast to psychological models because we look at the effect of distressing events or trauma on the nervous system and i think one of the reasons why we've been um, asked to go to so many places in the world is because everyone has a nervous system every human being the nervous system of every human being is programmed in the same way and the way cultures different cultures interpret different symptoms may be different but Ultimately, we all have the same nervous system, and so in our model, we work to look at the effects of distressing events on the nervous system and the symptoms that arise. So physical symptoms that are very common are things like stomach aches, headaches, chronic pain, irritable bowel syndrome, um, immune system disorders, because, in fact, the autonomic nervous system, which is the main focus of our intervention... um, has an influence on every organ of the body. So it makes sense that when a traumatic event dysregulates someone, that not only would they have the kind of typical psychological symptoms like fear and anxiety, depression, but that they would also have physical symptoms, and we see it all over the world.
0: And that's really interesting because as a a practitioner, um, I see that in my clinic all the time. And it becomes a real question how do we treat this? Is this a, a som- I mean, we have to treat the, the symptom as a somatic thing, but we also, I also can see that, wow, there must be some other event. There could be some other event that has created this.
1: So. Well, and one of the problems is that in places that aren't aware that distressing events do more than just cause psychological symptoms, they tend to put people on heavy medications. When maybe they don't need to be on a medication. So, for example, when we went to Thailand after the tsunami, um, we were there a month after the uh, tsunami hit. There, the typical symptoms of stomach aches, weak limbs, um, arm and leg pain, headaches, you know, all those sleep problems were being treated with psychotropic drugs that had been so-called generously donated uh-huh. by Western pharmaceutical companies. And little, we found little kids who were being put on. Prozac and uh, drugs like that for sleep disorders and stomach aches and things like that, mainly because people just were unfamiliar with the effect of a catastrophic event like that on the mind-body system.
0: So what happens if, if you're over-medicated with something like that? Let's talk a little bit about the nervous system and, and what, 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 can, what can get stuck. What, what are we talking about here?
1: Well, what Often happens, and, you know, now we're
0: not just, this isn't just a hypothesis.
1: We know this because the advances in science have, in the last five to ten years, have shown us through brain imaging what happens in the autonomic nervous system when there has been a traumatic event or a perception that someone is in danger. The perception part is important, and if you remind me, I'll talk some more about that at yes. a different point. But so what happens is that there is inside of our body, just like in any part of nature, a normal cyclical rhythm. And we have, you know, in nature, the phases of the moon and the tides and day following night and the seasons of the year and so forth. And the same is true inside our bodies. We have cycles, whether it's a menstrual cycle, but we also have a cycle in the nervous system And it's particularly evident in the relationship in the autonomic nervous system between its two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic branches of that nervous system. And the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system is like the accelerator on our car where it activates us, it, it generates excitation, and the parasympathetic branch relaxes us and calms us back down. And when the person is in a... In their what we call comfort zone or balanced mind, there's a really lovely wave that's going on all Mm -hmm. day long, you know, day after day, week after week, um, inside that nervous system. And when that's happening, we are all capable of integration between all the levels of brain function, like our cognitions, our emotions, our sensations are all working in, you know, moderate harmony, at least. It doesn't mean we can't get upset or anything. But what happens when there's a traumatic event or the perception of danger is that that cyclical rhythm is disrupted. And um, the way we describe it, very simplistically, is that that normal wave is bounced outside of the balance mind or the normal zone into either hyper or hypo arousal. And, and often for people, they oscillate between both extremes because the body is trying to come back into balance. So if you're in a state of hypoarousal where you're depressed and exhausted, uh, there's a good likelihood that at some point you're also going to be in some kind of hyperarousal as a way for the body to get homeostasis. So you may have periods of mania, periods of terror or fear, irritability, things like that.
0: So you'll go back and forth?
1: Some people go back and forth. Most of us have a preferred um, imbalance, a temperamental (laughs) sort of orientation, so... You could probably think about yourself, and if you're upset about something and you get bumped out of your normal zone, would you say you tend to get more hyper-aroused, meaning you get angry or tearful or, you know, anxious, or do you tend to get um, sort of deadened and rigid and um, less active?
0: Well, I also want to say, as or maybe re- I shouldn't be asking you on the radio. Oh, right? oh, you're asking me personally. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm just assuming every listener is sitting there thinking about <laughs> how they, uh, how they react to uh, to uh, a traumatic event or what the, the perception. You said two things, and I want to get to them. But I also want to say is as we are, people are driving in their cars now and they're listening to this. Wouldn't we say that? Even the conversation about this, if you have a history of trauma, this could be stimulating in some way?
1: Well, it could. I mean, it could certainly, as you start to think more about, well, what are the big T and little T or even cumulative T traumas in my life, what are they? And just the act of, of trying to recall some of them, if that's what people are doing, could be a little upsetting, yeah.
0: So if you are feeling like you're getting charged in some way and you're driving, please pull over, take a moment listen to the show. Remember something positive in your life. There you go. Right. That's right. Somehow, somehow to what, figure out a way or recreate a way to uh, re-stimulate what we call the parasympathetic. That's the part that's very calming and and feels pleasant and grounding to us.
1: Right. That's one of the skills that we teach is that um, when people are in a state of dysregulation, and the survival brain is on high alert, um, typically all that's uh, focused on is negativity because we are like walking risk detectors <laughs> and generally are programmed to collect negative information without even thinking about it. And most of us don't even know we're doing it, That our body, it's a system called neuroception that um, Stephen Porges has written a lot about, where we're constantly scanning our environment to see if we're safe. And what happens for people who've been in a state of uh, trauma is that they forget that there are other things happening in their bodies as well. And so we encourage people to talk about um, internal and external resources that give them pleasure or at least are neutral in their life, and as they do that, to really sense into what that's like in their body. And what happens then is, as you said, the parasympathetic part of that autonomic nervous system comes back online and it helps bring the person back into that normal zone where they have more access to all their
0: faculties. So um, by teaching someone how to remember in their bodies a a neutral event or something that's relaxing or pleasurable, that's such an an amazing tool that that people have already at their fingertips.
1: Exactly, and it's so simple. And can be taught to little children and people in other cultures. and it's uh, uniformly a wonderful way to help bring balance back.
0: So I, I want to uh, talk about some of your experiences with doing that, and we can go into uh, maybe a little description of of what um, of what occurs as you're doing a treatment so we can find out a little bit more about what TRM is. And I, for those of you who've just joined us, we are, this is Healthy Options on WERU, and we're speaking to uh, Dr. Lori Leach, and she's uh, a clinical trainer, researcher, and psychotherapist, co-founder and director of the Trauma Resource Institute, and uh, we're learning about a biologically-based trauma treatment appropriate for use with complex trauma, with adults and children, and those suffering from long-term and acute trauma. And... Uh, so let's uh, talk a little bit specifically about what, what that means. We we're now, so what? We're remembering something pleasurable. What is that? Why is that so significant?
1: Well, because it helps bring what, we're, what the TRM skills are doing. And tr- TRM is really uh, a brief training and treatment model that's derived from the skills of somatic experiencing, which was a uh, uh, is- a biologically-based intervention that was developed by Dr. Peter Levine. And uh, that training program is three years long and quite expensive. And so we decided to, we wanted to make a a biologically-based model accessible to lots more people than can typically take the somatic experiencing training. Um, So what happens is that there is uh, an emphasis on teaching people how to track the sensations in their body, because the our understanding is that talk doesn't speak to the survival part of the brain. It speaks to the cognitive part of the brain. And what the brain scans show increasingly is that when people are in a state of distress, particularly are traumatized, that very key areas of our neocortex go offline. And we're seeing this in Iraqi and Afghan vets who come home where there are major cognitive deficits showing up in these folks who are suffering from combat zone trauma. And, and, and what it does then is it has an impact on their work performance and all kinds of things because they have memory problems, concentration problems. So, when we, so this is not a model that relies on talk. It's not that people don't talk and they don't tell some or all of the story of what's happened to them, even though it's not necessary for them to do that this can be done without ever knowing the story of what happened to someone. But generally the way we start is by teaching people how to track sensations in their body, which can sound easier than it really is. Because for people who've had particularly interpersonal trauma, where somebody close to them or in a trusted position has violated them in some way, it can be very hard. uh, They have a They may have a relationship with their body that's not all that positive. And so inviting people to look inside their body and start to track sensations has to be done very carefully and respectfully. But we teach the skill of grounding, which is a way of bringing a person into the present moment. If you're grounded, you aren't thinking about the past and you're not worrying about the future. You're in the present moment. So that's the first skill that we teach in our training and that we use in treatment, grounding. And then we teach the skill of um, resourcing, which is what we were just talking about where you were inviting your listeners to um, bring up something that's a source of pleasure for them, a positive memory, a person in their life, a pet. Uh, But we don't leave it with the idea or thought or even image of that resource. We anchor it in the body by saying, and as you tell me about that, person or your favorite pet or that place in nature, um, what do you notice in your body? And inevitably, people feel an expansion in their chest, their breathing slows down. There are definite, definite physiological signs that the parasympathetic nervous system is beginning to come back online. And then if people are able to ground and resource, if they're able to report on sensations in their body and particularly to hold on to a positive sensation in their body or at least a neutral sensation, then we move on to direct trauma work using some other
0: skills. And and so you are accessing the trauma? You ask someone to talk about it? Definitely.
1: Like I can give you a great example. Recently I did a consultation for a colleague of mine and this man had been in a plane crash, and then several, uh, and obviously survived, and then several car accidents, which also is not uncommon. That if people have suffered a traumatic event that caught them off guard, that they their capacity to orient to their surroundings can sometimes be compromised.
0: So this guy. Um, so you're saying that the 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 car accidents possibly were uh, because of unresolved trauma from the first incident. Yeah, unresolved
1: in the sense that biologically he was not, his survival system was disrupted and he Uh wasn't scanning his environment in the way that we typically do without even noticing it. So, as he started to tell me, I asked him a little bit about what happened. He wanted to focus on his last car accident. And as he did, I noticed that he moved his head just a tiny bit. And in this model, the, the clinician or practitioner. Um, very closely tracks what's observable in the client that gives us information about what's happening in the nervous system. And he made this little turn of his head. So I, I said, I notice as you turn your head a little bit to the right, as you told me about where the truck was coming from, that um, you had that little movement. Would it be okay to do that again and just go as far as you did the first time? So he did it, and I asked him what he noticed, and he said he felt nauseous. And his heart was starting to beat faster. So I had him bring his head just back to normal where he was facing me, looking at me, and, and he settled back down. So, and then he started yawning, which is a, can be a sign of boredom, but can also <laughs> be a symptom of release or discharge of energy uh-huh. that's locked in the system. Hmm. And we worked for about a half an hour with him turning his head to the right in very small gradations, which we call titrations, never beyond the point of only up to the edge of discomfort. And when he would get up to the edge of tension, the nausea would be there. Then he would come back to center, yawn a lot. And each time he found that he could turn his head a little bit further before bringing it back to center Mm -hmm. until after about, you know, maybe not quite a half an hour, but probably 20 minutes, he was able to completely turn his head in a full uh, orienting response without any nausea and bring it back to center. So what we're assuming happens to this guy in just that little piece of the treatment is that now his body is beginning to be reprogrammed so that he doesn't have an aversive response to turning his head a little way. He didn't hmm. even know he had one. Well, I mean, this, uh, Most of this happens below the level of consciousness. So That's one of the reasons why we use observation so closely, because the trauma story lives in the body as gesture, as uh, muscle tension patterns as all kinds of things that are either observable by the clinician or reportable by the client as we work with them. And people get used to being able to report on their internal sensations quite quickly. Most of us don't have that vocabulary initially.
0: Initially, but there, that's something. That's but it something. comes
1: along pretty fast because the reward is very great.
0: And so it's, yes, and when you start paying attention, you can start feeling the differences.
1: Yeah. And so we work with increments of the trauma, which is a, one thing that sets these, this biological model apart from things like exposure therapy, which is, un- unfortunately, from my point of view, gaining in, um, in usage, where people um, go right into the heart of the trauma. And mm. I believe that that uh, reinforces a neurological dysregulation that's already been set in motion so in our model, we, we work with increments of traumatic material alternated with resource um, work where people really do go back into a state in their body that's feeling more relaxed or at least less pain in the, in the case of people who are suffering from chronic pain. Even people who feel like there's no place in their body where there isn't pain often come to realize that, in fact, there are little places in the body that have either no pain or at least less pain.
0: So how does this work um, in multiculturally? I know we have the same nervous systems, but how do we uh, have, the, in terms of vocabulary and understanding, are they culturally based, would you say? In, well, in one of the benefits of this
1: model is it is not an insight-oriented approach. We don't need to look at an interpretation of why somebody's doing something or why someone was as distressed as they are about something. None of that uh, has to be examined. Some people want to look at that later in their work, but it's not necessary. It's
0: not necessary. So
1: in many cultures, they, they don't have the insight orientation, um, the personal growth orientation that we do in Western culture. So, Or they're communally based, where really all they care about is, I want to get back, so that I can perform the role in my village that I'm used to performing. Mm. And um, they can describe, in fact, sometimes more easily than in the West, they can um, describe the sensations in their body. And in Asia, we've worked a lot in Asia, um, people there, because massage and body work is just an acupuncture, Mm
0: -hmm. are
1: so endemic to that society, they're usually better versed in describing the internal sensations in their body than people in the West are when they first start this
0: kind of treatment. Do people have different interpretations of what the trauma is? I mean, yeah, they
1: definitely do. It's interesting. And for example, in Thailand, after the tsunami, we worked with an elderly man, late 70s, but he looked much older. And uh, he was brought in for treatment because he wasn't eating and his Um, daughters were afraid he was just going to fade away and die and when we worked with the sensations in his stomach his belief about his stomach aches and his loss of appetite was that a ghost of one of the western tourists who had died in the waves you know the, the tsunami hit the resort coast of southern thailand and many westerners were killed and the buddhist Monks who had been praying for the Thai people had not been praying initially for the Western tourists. And so this man believed that because these, the ghosts of these tourists were still floating around, that they were entering the bodies of the Thai people and that he had a stomach ache because of that. Wow. Um, in another culture, and when I talked about that in China, the people laughed. Oh, we would never feel that way about our stomach aches. This is after the Sichuan province earthquake. <laughs> But you know they so sometimes there are quite elaborate um, rationales given for the symptom that come out of the culture, and sometimes they're very straightforward, and they're exactly the same as any place else in the world.
0: Right, and yet it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter.
1: Sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system are the same. We're biologically programmed to respond to threat and fear in exactly the same ways. It's only our interpretation of the symptoms and the meaning and, you know, what we make of what we call mental distress or mental illness, or, you know, in some countries they think they're crazy if they're paying attention to psychological
0: symptoms. Right. So So at
1: that level, it's different.
0: So it's almost easier to get into the body for some on that level. Yeah, it is. And they're not
1: as inclined in some of these more communal cultures, they're not as inclined to... um, want to interpret everything and ask why, well, why am I feeling this and why is this happening?
0: We're listening to, uh, you're listening to Healthy Options, and we are speaking with Dr. Lori Leach, and she is a clinical trainer, researcher, psychotherapist for over 25 years, co-founder and director of the Trauma Resource Institute, which is a nonprofit center which provides training in the trauma resiliency model, which we've been discussing here. And uh, you're listening, by the way, to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, and 102.9 Bangor. And uh, you can listen online at WERU.org. Some of you may be doing that already. And um, we're just going to continue our conversation about trauma and and how that works in our bodies and how we can uh, help. You know, I'm looking at the... uh, at some of the literature that I have from you here and I see we talked about that lovely wave with the um, parasympathetic and the sympathetic the charge and the discharge happening and Mm -hmm. I'm seeing this unbelievable um, graph when things get um, activated and I you know it it looks like a jagged line it looks like a a, a bad EKG, an EKG (laughs) that's (laughs) That's gone bad if that's meaningful to anybody. what happens? It almost seems to me that that um, if both sides of this hyperactive and, and depressive aspect of, of trauma uh, happen simultaneously, then it would look like someone would just not be there. What
1: right. can well, we and talk and that about? call a state of freeze, and it's it's not uncommon. I mean, we have two biologically based um, survival responses: fight and flight, and those are. They come from our brain stem. They don't have to be consciously um, chosen. Sometimes we have the luxury of deciding to flee or fight. But in many cases, when what we call the fast system is operating in the brain, it bypasses our neocortex and we act without even thinking. And so if people are able to fight successfully fight or successfully flee, those people have the best outcomes because the energy that's been mobilized in the body um, automatically, again, is discharged in the action of fight and flight. But what happens is many people can't, complete, can't at all fight or flee or can't complete it. They get interrupted in the middle of trying to get away. And in that case, the energy remains locked in the body, and it causes a lot of symptoms. And sometimes, in in probably over 50% of people, we're resilient enough that over time that energy gets gradually released and we digest, so-called digest the trauma. But in the others, it stays locked in the body and the system never returns. It never resets back to normal again. And so the new setting for their autonomic nervous system is one of dysregulation. And those are the people who are going to see more, more enduring symptoms, including immune system problems. And so when we can't fight or flee or when we think we can't, because perception is every bit as important as the reality yes. to the nervous system, if I perceive that I'm in danger, my whole biological system responds as if I am, whether I truly am or not. So it doesn't matter uh, if I really am or not. If I perceive I am, all these same things go into action so if i perceive or i actually can't fight or flee then the body goes into what's called a freeze state and it it comes from much earlier in the animal kingdom we can, we in our training we show a video of a possum and we call it playing possum which makes it sound volitional it's not it's a biological mechanism freeze where this possum is being attacked by a coyote and goes into a freeze state and. In evolution, it came about because there are animals who, in order to kill, have to meet with resistance. And so by going into a freeze state for an animal who isn't going to be able uh, the possum is a very cumbersome little animal, can't run away from a coyote. Um, so to go into freeze makes perfect evolutionary sense. And the coyote then, in the face of no resistance and it looks like it's dead. Even the flies will come around its face and so forth. Loses interest and walks away without eating that possum. So we have that built into us as human animals, even though in many cases it does not serve us well. Sometimes it does, but in many cases it doesn't. If you freeze on the battlefield, you're in danger. Or mm. if you freeze on the battlefield and you can't help another one of your buddies, you feel terrible shame and guilt. And people who freeze in the face of sexual assault often feel ashamed of themselves as well. So it has a whole um, follow-on of emotional and then cognitive symptoms that start to follow that initial freeze. And we know from research that people who have experienced freeze are the ones most likely to have more severe and enduring
0: uh, symptoms. So how does this model, how would you undo the freeze? How does that... How does that work? Uh, well, one of the and ways,
1: and freeze, it's a very interesting phenomenon because freeze can be a total freeze where someone looks catatonic. Yes. But freeze can also be in body parts. Like when we were in China, we worked with a teacher whose school had, was one of those that collapsed during the earthquake, and he uh-huh. had sheltered some of his schoolchildren under one of his arms. And when we saw him, it was two 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 and a half months later, Um, that particular arm was numb even though it had been hit by debris but not in any there was no medical reason for his uh, the numbness his arm was in a state of freeze it was as if he dissociated from his arm and we can so you can work with a body part or you can work with the whole body it's generally you have to be extremely careful when you work biologically with people who've been in a state of freeze because even though on the outside they may look like nothing much is going on. In fact, their face, they can have a very flat affect. In mm-hmm. fact, it's the highest state of arousal. And so when you start to bring someone out of freeze, if you don't do it carefully and in that titrated way that I mentioned earlier, you run the risk of really re-traumatizing someone because this big burst of, of emotion and um, uh, energy comes out or can and it frightens people.
0: So titration, just for those who might have just joined us, that, that's the approaching the trauma a little bit after grounding. Let, let's go through the stages again. There's the grounding of, of someone. to Right, fill. that we
1: do. We have, well, overarching the entire treatment model is the skill of tracking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where we track the body, the nervous system, by the observation of the clinician and also the report of the client, And then we teach grounding, which is a way of accessing the parasympathetic nervous system, but even as important, it's bringing the person into the present moment so they're not in a fear state from the past and they're not in an anticipatory anxious state about the future. They're fully present in the moment. Then we work with resourcing to see is the person capable of holding a positive sensation, of finding one and holding it in the body and if we can't find a positive one, which we often can't in people who've been severely traumatized or have had a long term history of trauma, we look for something that's at least neutral or less painful than what they're used to experiencing. Mm-hmm. And after that, when we start to work with the trauma, we work with three core skills. And one is titration. And titration is a term that comes from chemistry. And it means when you're trying to make a chemical compound and you're mixing one chemical into another, you do it in small titrations. Because if you don't, if you just dump a whole lot of one chemical into the other, the risk is that you're going to cause a big explosion. And the same is true in the body. So that we work with small parts of the story of the trauma or small parts of the symptom profile that's you know uh, evident in the body Um, and alternated with the resource states. And so we work back and forth, and that skill of shifting from a small part of activating material to something that's more calming, the act of of shifting back and forth was named by Peter Levine pendulation, like Uh the pendulum of a clock.
0: And doing that carefully is... And
1: doing that carefully, and the act of shifting back and forth mimics The normal wave of the nervous system, which is excitation and calming, excitation and calming. And so our intervention is a parallel process to what we're trying to restore in the nervous system. And in the process of shifting between those two kinds of states, there is a release of energy that comes. Uh, A a release of the blocked traumatic energy in the form of yawning in the case that I gave you as an example earlier, Mm, but also it can be heat, it can be tingling, it can be crying, it can be laughing, uh, it can be itching. There are lots of different release uh, signs that we look for as our way of knowing where the person is in the rebalancing effort, because that's what we're trying to accomplish And then the last skill, completion of defensive responses, is also can be very important for people who couldn't successfully fight or flee, where the um, impulse to fight or flee is still in the body, and Mm. it starts to show up. It shows up either in movements in the hands and legs, which is where lots of fight and flight shows up, or in the face, because uh, fighting can also be vocalizations, shouting, stay away from me, whatever someone might have wished they could do. And so we work with, well, what do you wish you could have done? in in the guy, uh, as the truck approached him, who was in that accident, I said, well, if you could have, if time could have slowed down and you could have done whatever you wish you could have done what would it have been and he said i would have and he made the gesture i would have turned the wheel really sharply and pushed on the accelerator and gotten the hell out of there and so then you invite the person to slow the gesture down so that it gives the 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 um sensations a chance to increase in intensity and you have them do that gesture a couple of times and then sense into their body and inevitably there's a release or a discharge. And that's the the blocked energy finally being able to leave the body because that energy that was mobilized and has been stuck has now been able to be released in the completion of that um, movement. And they don't even have to do the movement in front of us. They can do it in their mind's eye because the brain scans show that if I say I wanted to punch somebody and I'm not a violent person but I wish I could have, And I don't even want to make a punching motion in my session with a practitioner. I say to somebody, it's fine to just do it in your mind's eye. Let yourself see yourself doing what you wish you could have done, but you weren't able to do because you didn't have enough time or because you weren't strong enough or fast enough. And the person can imagine doing it, and the same parts of the brain... Um, Activate. are activated as they would be if they actually did it in your office. But some people feel too self-conscious for that. Not
0: many, but some do. <laughs> you know it's, it really strikes me as, as amazing, and I, I said this earlier as well, that our body's ability to heal, given the opportunity, is oh, huge. Oh, it is.
1: You know, people are often asking me, why do you go to the worst, awful places? Sure. Like where there was a genocide or um, yeah. I just got back less than a week ago from Kenya we were working with counselors about the uh, tribal clashes after the post election difficulties that they had and so i get home and people say well why do you go to these places that are so difficult and where it's so grim but the reason part of i mean part of the reason is because the resilience of the human body and mind is just incredible and it becomes such an honor to be at the threshold of an experience where somebody really taps in again to their resiliency and you see the sense of hope that they begin to feel that they don't have to live handicapped by these symptoms and they in the beauty in two of the research studies that i've published were single session treatments where in one session um we begin the resetting process so that people uh experience a a reduction or elimination of a lot of their symptoms just in one session. One session. So people feel a lot of hope. And the human body is incredibly resilient. We're programmed that way, some of us more than others because of our genetics. Right. And, you know, our early attachment and all those things that are very formative in in our nervous system development. But we have a lot of resilient capacity in us.
0: What, uh, let's just follow through for, in, in, in an example, we were talking about the gentleman in China. What happened with his arm in your session? Well, did so it, did we, it
1: get... we worked with his arm to ask him if there was any part of his arm that he could sense. We had already grounded and resourced him, so we knew where the resource sensations were in his body. One of the practitioners asked him if it was okay for her to put her hand on his arm and asked him if he could feel the contact of her hand against his arm which he could he could sense into the warmth and as he sensed into that warmth he the, the uh, it was like he started to well you can say it in one of two ways he was either starting to come back alive in his arm <laughs> or it was the freeze was starting to melt right as soon as you can get a sensation being felt in that part of the body then you're sort of off and running because it's starts to take over on its own, right you know where um he, and he by the time- by the end of his session he had no numbness in his arm wow, and we check we were working in that camp for several days, so we check back with people when we can just to see well, you know has it stayed stable or is there some backsliding, which there can be, and I don't want to m- imply that all these horrible traumas are are curable in one session oh, no. but it's very, very unusual that there isn't some sort of relief in
0: an initial session. And you're treating and teaching people on, who live there, it sounds right. like, well, if you our, can.
1: our mission is not to go in as sort of heroic figures and save the day. It's to go in and teach local practitioners these skills. So we've been going to China for the last year. Um, I feel like I commute there because (laughs) we train now over 500 physicians, nurses, and teachers in these skills. And then as part of the training of local people, we offer treatment as a demonstration to the trainees or as the trainees are better equipped to do the treatment on their own, we coach them or supervise them while we're there. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because it's really important. After a disaster, or after a traumatic, uh, really catastrophic event, lots of very well-intended people come rushing into a country, and the ones who do the best service for that country are the ones who leave something behind, so that the local people can do it for themselves. and And it trickles down even further, because this skill set is taught to the client as well. So... Particularly grounding and resourcing, not necessarily titration and pendulation. Um, we have a skill we teach called shift and stay for um, people who've been clients, where if they get activated, you know, outside of of working with a practitioner, which you know it is often happen. practitioners aren't very available in these countries, to shift out of the state of out of the sensations of activation to a place in the body that feels less of it or even feels neutral or calm and that and stay there that's why we call it shift and stay and that's very helpful so people even can bring their own level of activation down our goal really is to deepen the normal zone for people so that they're more resilient to the stressors that happen in their lives and even though I've been focusing mostly on large scale trauma it's very this is very effective with small-scale things like couples who've had fights with each other or um, it's really great with medical trauma because a lot goes on in the unconscious that we're not conscious of when people have been under anesthesia, for example. Hmm. So we can work with a lot of body states that end up um, being the result of unrecognized medical trauma and clear the system of those things so that people are much more resilient
0: and relationships and even, yeah and people yeah. can
1: learn to do that in their relationships and kids we've had kids who we've treated taught the skills um teach grounding and resourcing to their parents <laughs> you know and then they feel pretty like pretty big stuff you yeah know, that they have something to offer the family
0: that's incredible yeah it's really great We're speaking uh, with uh, Dr. Lori Leach. She's a clinical trainer, researcher, psychotherapist, and has been for over 25 years, co-founder and director of the Trauma Resource Institute, a nonprofit center which provides training in the trauma resiliency model, which is a biologically-based trauma treatment appropriate for use with complex trauma with adults, children, and children suffering from long-term and acute trauma. You know, I know that there's a website that we haven't been mentioning, and we probably should if people want more information about this. Yeah, the
1: website is is just www.traumaresourceinstitute.com. It's not .org, it's .com. And there's lots of information on the website. Well, it's certainly information about our trainings, but there are also the two research articles I referred to, the outcome studies after uh, the tsunami and after Hurricane Katrina, and a sort of little fact sheets as well as our field reports from various um, international trip. So it's, a, it's got a lot of good information on it.
0: And I imagine some people might want to get some of the training and know where you're working and what's going on in the world. But, um, but there's also a
1: button, I, I guess I should say this, for contributions, and people can contribute either through uh, mailing checks and the addresses there or through PayPal. It's interesting, Rhonda, because in the United States, our work is pretty well-funded, but the international work, we, we, you know, and we're relatively new. We're barely three years old. Uh, the international work doesn't have good funding, and we often end up doing it um, for very, on, very, on a very low budget. And so if anybody is interested in the work in Africa or China um, and wants to contribute, that would just be wonderful.
0: And that's, again, www.traumaresourceinstitute.com. And uh, by the way, again, you're listening to Healthy Options on community radio, WERU 89.9 Blue Hill and 102.9 in Bangor. And this is uh, Dr. Lori Leach that we're talking to right now. And I hope everyone will go to the website, by the way, because it's really very complete and interesting. Um, One of the things that we're talking about is how we can have little T trauma and big T trauma. And I'm wondering how, as a clinician, how, how do the worker, how, how do you deal with your own being exposed to all of these stories and these, these uh, you know, trauma Well, <laughs> it's a
1: really good question because the issue of what we call secondary or vicarious traumatization is, is a big one and is very common and accounts for a lot of burnout in social service agencies, for example, who work with um, people who are in a lot of distress but also for humanitarian aid workers who collect stories of human rights violations. There are, you know, all kinds of settings in which the practitioner or clinician takes in a lot of um, information that can be very highly charged for their own system. So these same skills are used. When we take teams, for example, when we took a team into Thailand. Um, I got very activated during lunchtime one day when one of our translators brought a stack of photos to the lunch table, and I just assumed that they were pictures of her family. So I was sort of in an unguarded state, Mm. and she handed them to me, and as I started flipping through them, I thought, gosh, they look like sandbags on a beach. And then I realized it was picture after picture of what she'd seen immediately after the tsunami, and it was bodies. And I just burst into tears and had, you know, just, crying, crying, crying for about a minute. And my colleague Elaine, who now we've gone on to start this nonprofit, she used these skills with me. And um, within about five minutes, I felt like I was regrounded and I had released the energy of taking in that visual, all, that, all those visuals. And it was incredibly helpful for me. And after Katrina, we held very large nationally-based Social Service Agency sponsored um, us going into Louisiana, and they didn't want us to treat the clients in their caseload. They wanted us to to treat and then train their workers. And so we trained um, the people who stocked the emergency food. We trained the person behind the desk who was um, signing people up for food cards and giving out clothing because people were coming to those secretaries in such a high state of irritability from the trauma that they were really nasty to them and these people were getting you know really burned out being there with these long lines of people who had so many needs so it's a great self-care model I use it when I'm driving I tend to be an impatient driver <laughs> when I feel the that impatient energy arising in me you know I ground myself and I you know I look around and notice something that is calming and or beautiful if somebody has a rose bush that I'm driving by. So I use it in really small ways as well as, you know, in settings like uh, Rwanda, for example, when I went and some of the stories I heard in the memorials we went to were very difficult to witness.
0: Sure. Let's just let let that sink in for a moment. Um you mentioned way back at the beginning um the ideas of of trauma uh, with cultural oppression and the that the the situations that people are living in and when you go into some of these uh cultures is there uh, is there an understanding is there a safety to actually work with that or is that something that's more a trauma of immigrants or people who fled or how how, how would you work with that in, in what you're finding in your international work I'm not sure what you mean about is there a safety? Well, if people are feeling, if, if there's a, a cultural oppression, and you is, know. Are
1: they at risk in talking yes, about it? Yes, are they at risk
0: in talking about it? Are well, they. Well,
1: definitely in China, it was uh, very tricky for people to talk about the fact that the schools that um, collapsed were mostly the schools in poor areas, and it was pretty well documented that it was built, they were built with um in adequate materials and it had happened fairly soon afterwards and has still continued to happen that people who attempted to band together to complain to the government about those schools were put in jail so we had to be very sensitive to keeping our own um political opinions about that out of the work with people right. and certainly not initiate uh, questions out of our own curiosity, for example, um, that would get people in trouble. And in Rwanda, it was also true where even though I was there 14 years after that genocide, the trauma field was still very charged and the relationship between the Hutus and the Tutsis was tricky. And, uh, you know, you just have to take the responsibility before you go into these settings to understand the politics and some of the historical um, situations that have led to conditions that are present. For example, I was pretty horrified at myself when I first was getting ready to go to Rwanda at how little I really knew about the continent of Africa and what very limited ideas I had about colonialism. And, you know, I so before I went, I read a whole lot about Mm -hmm. what the colonialists did where they put a grid over africa essentially and divided divided it up up. without any regard to ethnic Mm -hmm. or tribal loyalties which is one of the reasons why there are so many african countries where they have warring factions because originally those countries weren't countries and um and often how one group was pitted against another group to serve that colonialist um Purpose, whether it was to develop certain kinds of crops and capacities for growing or whatever it was, you know, you have a responsibility if you're going to, to go into places like that to understand some of those settings. For and Another one is in Louisiana where, um, you know, when there was such a big racial difference in, how, uh, in people's options after that hurricane and people's suspicions about the government, And I was talking, actually, to a client of mine in Washington about it and saying, gosh, it just seems like there's so much suspicion. And she said, well, do you know what happened in the 1920s? And, of course, I didn't. And what was happening, and I probably will get it slightly off, but the gist of it was that a huge storm was about to hit the New Orleans coast, and the people back then, as they were in Katrina, were worried about the levees breaking. The waters were rising, and so a decision was made to blow a hole in the levee to release the pressure on it so that, you know, there would be fewer holes that would develop. And my understanding is, and my daughter teaches history, so I had her, I couldn't believe this was true, but I had her look it up, and she said it was. The hole that was blown was where the Ninth Ward is, which is (laughs) where the levee broke again and really decimated Ward 9 in in New Orleans. So that's a part of the history of the people who live in Ward 9. And it, it gave me a whole different understanding of why people had a certain uh, cynicism about what was going to happen after the levy broke again. So there's lots of information that's available for any of us who are interested in understanding where cumulative trauma is concerned, why some people react in certain ways that may seem harsh at first.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, You know, there's there are two books that well, one uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa is. I don't know if you read that one. No. Yeah, that that's well, we'll have to get that one to you. It's uh, it was an eye opener in my college days. But and uh, you know, of course, there's Randy Newman's song, you know, about the flood in Louisiana. Yeah. And and that's really kind of how many of us know what happened originally (laughs) with Huey Long and such. Um, I think the responsibility, though, that we're, um, that we're um, taking when we go into different um, areas is a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. And it also really fits perfectly into the work that you do, the trauma resiliency model, because that history is still in the cells, isn't it?
1: It sure is. It's still in the cells, and there's lots of ways that we can contribute, any of us, whether we live in, in, say, Rwanda or not, can contribute to a healing process. And, I mean, one of my big, um, what do you call it, uh, bandwagon issues is how we interview people about what's happened to them. And, for example, in Rwanda they have a whole truth and reconciliation process that, that was going on for years. It's sort of winding down now. But one of the things that would happen in their local um judicial proceedings called gachacha was that the person, usually the Tutsi villager whose family had been killed, would have to testify in front of all the rest of the village, mostly Hutus, about what had been done to her family members and what she'd seen oh my. and the act i uh, mean and it had a good intention, which was to put everything out in the open and then make the villagers who were the perpetrators account for themselves before they were sentenced to jail or prison. But what was also happening is that then people were committing suicide after they testified because the act of bringing back all the stories took them into the heart of that trauma. And that's a large scale example, but there are also smaller scale ones of when someone goes to a social service agency for treatment, being asked a whole series of detailed questions about every horrible thing that's ever happened to them. Yes. And it's not titrated. They're not asked questions about their resiliency or what helps them cope or what gives them peace. And so that's my latest mission is to, I'm writing an article about it, and I do a lot of talking about it at conferences, how we need to redesign our interview process so that we don't re-traumatize people in, with the good intention of helping them.
0: Well, well we're going to have to end there, Laurie. It's this a has good been, note to end on. It is a very good note, very positive. We're speaking to Dr. Laurie Leach. She's a clinical trainer, researcher, psychotherapist for over 25 years, co-founder and director of the Trauma Resource Institute, a nonprofit center which provides training in the trauma resiliency model. For more information about that, you should go to Is that right? com. And if you've missed any of the show, it is on the uh, WERU archives. I'm Rhonda Feynman and this is Healthy Options. Thank you all for listening, and Lori, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank
1: you.